Well, I want to talk this morning about a spiritual principle that is actually uh, counterintuitive to our humanity. Spiritual principle that is absolutely important, absolutely essential, absolutely part of living as a believer, living as a Christian. And yet it goes against uh, what we're used to. And in many ways, this concept won't make sense to us. It'll seem a little bit foreign because our inclination is to self-preservation and our inclination is to self-protection. But living and serving uh, in the heavenly realm requires a new way of thinking. How many know that's true? We, we have to think differently. We have to live differently as believers, as people who are following Christ. And the Bible says that God's ways are not our ways. We usually think of that in terms of the will of God, right? We, we think, well, you know, God's leading me in a different path, and I didn't expect that. And we kind of quote, well, God's ways are not our ways. But God's ways are not always uh, also applies to how we're called to live every day. The way that God wants us to live, the way that God has equipped us to live, the way that God has empowered us to live is not the way we used to live. And as Christians, we've been given a new life, and we're called to live by His Spirit, which means we have to live differently than we used to live before Christ. We've been given a renewed mind. We've been given a transformed mind, which means now we have to think differently than we used to think before Christ. And that's where faith comes in. Because faith drives us to know and believe that the Lord's teaching and the Lord's ways are absolutely correct. Even when, and especially when, it comes to the principle we're going to study this morning. So let's take our Bibles and turn to 2 Kings chapter 4. 2 Kings chapter 4, where we're going to see the historical account of the prophet Elisha. And we're going to see how Elisha interacts with a widow who had a significant crisis in her life. Now, Elisha was the prophet after Elijah. And you may remember, if you look back at chapter 2, that Elisha, when Elijah was about to be taken to heaven, Elisha asked Elijah for a double portion of the spirit that was on him, a double portion of the blessing. And Elijah said to him, if you see me when I'm taken into heaven, then God will give that to you. Well, he did. The chariot of fire came and took Elijah up into heaven. And Elisha saw that and he praised God because that meant that God was giving him a double portion of the blessing that Elijah had. Now, Elijah was an amazing servant of God. And we've studied him before the, the contest with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. He stood alone uh, for the nation. He stood alone against a very evil and corrupt king and queen. We know their names were Ahab and Jezebel. And we know that he stood for the Lord uh, against the nation that was, that was absolutely caught up in idol worship, that was caught in evil, that was, that was uh, just, just rampantly disobedient to God. And Elijah kind of becomes the lone voice, the one who's standing up for the Lord. And, and they have this contest in chapter uh, 17 and 18 of 1 Kings. And uh, Elijah builds two altars, they build two altars, one for the prophets of Baal, one for God. And they have this contest we've talked about before where they each sacrifice and the God who, who brings down fire from heaven is the true God. Well, the prophets of Baal dance around, cut themselves, yell out, cry, uh, roll on the ground, do everything for six hours, nothing happens. Elijah prays 
after pouring water on his sacrifice, fire burns the sacrifice, burns the altar, even burns the dirt. And the people temporarily, for the moment, start to acknowledge that God's God. They, they, they have a moment of temporary understanding, and they kind of uh, tentatively promise to serve him again, and, and everything's going to be good, but that's short-lived, as it always seems to be with Israel. So as you get to 2 Kings chapter 3, Ahab's son Jehoram becomes king. And Jehoram, while he's not quite as bad as Ahab was, verses 2 and 3 tell us that, he still clings to sin, and the Bible says that he provoked Israel to sin. And then he gets the bright idea to ally with the king of Judah and the king of Edom and to take on the king of Moab because the king of Moab, Moab was a nation uh, off to the west. Uh, Moab was causing all kinds of problems and, uh, excuse me, to the east, uh, causing all kinds of problems and threatening them. So, so Jehoram aligns with the king of Judah and the king of Edom and he says, you know what, we need to, we need to fight this. We need to gather together and and try to, try to take on the king of Moab. But they get the sense early on that they're not going to have victory. That God's not going to help them. That, that there's not going to be blessing taking place. So Jehoshaphat, I know there's a lot of history, but it'll make sense. Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, says, we need a prophet. We need somebody that will come in and tell us what God says. And they find Elisha. And Jehoshaphat knew Elisha. In fact, if you look at chapter 3 and verse 12, he says about Elisha, the word of the Lord is with him. Now, wouldn't that be an awesome statement for everybody to say about you and me? I, I think if I wanted something to be said about me other than I love the Lord and serve the Lord with all my heart, I would want somebody to be able to say about me, the word of the Lord is with him. And, and really, for every believer, this shouldn't be exclusive to the prophets. For every believer, it should be true to say, the word of the Lord is with that person. Now you say, well, Elisha's different than me, and he was a prophet. Look at all he did. He had a double portion of God's blessing. But let me tell you why that statement, the word of the Lord is with him, should be true of every one of us. First of all, look at what you're holding in your hands. We have the word of God. We are responsible to study and know the Word of God. We're responsible to memorize the Word of God. We have it anytime we want. And if you say, well, my Bible's at home. Yes, but you have a cell phone, right? You have a tablet. You have something. You have a laptop. We're, we're at this point never without Facebook or email, but we're many times without the Word of God. The Word of God should be probably your most used app on your phone. So, we have the Word of God in our hands, we're responsible for it, and we should be able to know it and speak it at all times. Second of all, we have the Spirit of God, and the Spirit of God indwells us and changes our mind and speaks to us. So, the more filled we are with His Spirit, the more His Word should be in us. And in a time when there is so much lying, aren't you stunned by the amount of lying that's going on right now? In our country, it is, it's, it's, I don't even know how to grasp it anymore. There's so much lying in politics. There's so much lying in the media. There's so much lying in culture and so much confusion about what's right, what should believe to the point that I think it doesn't really matter to people anymore what's right and what they could believe. How powerful would it be if our witness and our ministry was to live as people that were said, the word of the Lord is with them. 
How strong would it be for the gospel if, if that described us? I can't think of a more important role for the church and for believers at this point than that. Well, Jehoshaphat says we need a prophet, and they get Elisha. So they bring Elisha in. This is backstory in chapter 3. We're going to get to chapter 4 in a minute. He, he brings him in, and the hand of the Lord is on Elisha, and he tells Jehoshaphat, God's, God has a strategy for this battle. He's going to give you victory, and when the three kings do that, they have a tremendous victory. And the next event that takes place is in chapter 4. And as soon as the victory is won, and Elisha has had this, this victory that he's given to the people, uh, to the kings of the nations, this problem arises. And I want you to see this morning the problem, and I want you to see God's solution and why this is so important for us. Chapter 4, 2 Kings, start in verse 1. Now a certain woman of the wives of the sons of the prophets cried out to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead. And you know that your servant feared the Lord, and the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. Elisha said to her, What shall I do for you? Tell me, what do you have in the house? And she said, Your maidservant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil. Then he said, Go, borrow vessels at large for yourself from all your neighbors, even empty vessels. Don't get a few. And you shall go in, shut the door behind you and your sons, and pour out into all these vessels, and you shall set aside what is full. So she went from him and shut the door behind her and her sons. They were bringing the vessels to her, and she poured. When the vessels were full, she said to her son, Bring me another vessel. And he said to her, There is not one vessel more. And the oil stopped. Then she came and told the man of God, and he said, Go, sell the oil and pay your debt, and you and your sons can live on the rest. Now, this is an interesting situation because the woman was the wife of one of Elisha's prophets. He had a team of people that, that served with him, like the disciples with Jesus. And this man feared the Lord. This man was a, was a good servant of the Lord. He, he knew the Lord. He studied God's word. He had a word from the Lord that God gave him. And he was faithful to God. He loved the Lord. What a great statement to be made. But he dies. And the woman is now threatened by her creditors. They're saying, we're going to take your kids. We're going to sell your kids as slave because you guys owe us money. Apparently, there was no provision. Apparently, this was kind of a, a sudden death of this prophet. And, and, and you haven't made provision. You don't have enough to pay off your debt. So she comes to Elisha for help. But she has a problem. Because the problem apparently has no solution. She can't manufacture money she doesn't have. In their culture, a woman didn't just go work a full-time job. There wasn't really that opportunity. And even if she could have, there's no time. The creditors are on her doorstep. They're saying they want their money now, and, and, and there's nothing there. There's no way she's going to be able to do this. She's in completely dire straits. She doesn't have time for a long-term plan or a short-term plan. The problem is now. Now, when that happens in our lives, that is a great time for the Lord to show his power. Instead of us panicking and stressing and worrying and finding other solutions and looking for answers from other people and other things, those times when we're desperate, those times when we're in dire straits, are the time for the Lord to show his mercy and his provision in huge ways. Because the Lord loves to prove 
how great he is when something's wrong. The Lord loves to prove that when there's no answer, that when we come to him with bold and expectant faith, that he will respond in awesome ways. Now, there's nothing in the text, if you look at it, about whether she called on the Lord for help. But for some reason, I guess because of the affinity between her husband and Elisha, she comes to Elisha for a solution. So I asked myself on that, does she have more confidence at this point in Elisha than she does in the Lord? Because the text doesn't record any uh, moment of her going before the Lord. And he's a powerful prophet, and, 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 but, but it's important for us to remember that our confidence needs to be in the Lord first and only. Rather than going to somebody else, rather than finding another outlet, rather than complaining to somebody and saying, I don't know what to do. If we would get on our faces before the Lord and just go to him and say, God, I need your help. So many times we would see how wrong we were to seek other counsel and how right we were to go to the Lord. We don't have prophets like Elisha, right? But we have the spirit of God. And which is better, a man or God? Instead of going to a prophet, she should have gone to the Lord. And when we don't know what to do, when we come to the Lord and open up our heart and ask him what to do, God will respond. Not, not about a sin issue, not about like, Lord, should I keep on lusting or should I keep on stealing or should I keep on committing sin? Listen, if you're not walking right with the Lord, God's not going to respond to those kinds of prayers. Psalm 68, uh, 6 says, if I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord won't hear. So if you're going to God in prayer and you're still hanging on to sin and you're not confessing that and you're actually not ashamed about it and, and you start to pray and say, Lord, help me, God's going to go, well, you, you still have wickedness in your heart that you're, not, that you're not confessing. So why would I help you? That, that's what the Bible says, Psalm 66, 18. But when we are seeking the Lord, when we confess and we come to him in a pure heart and we say, Lord, please show me the answer. Lord, please Please help me. I don't, I don't have a solution. Please meet this need that I have. Lord, please help me to know how to raise up this child in the way that they should go. Because, Lord, they're starting to go wayward, and I see it. And, and, and what I'm doing apparently isn't enough. Lord, please open that door for the next moment of my life. Please close that door if I'm going the wrong way and it's my will. Please, please, Lord, show me what the path is. Do I, do I move? Do I go to the mission field? Do I take a new job? Do I do this? Do I do this? When we come to the Lord and we say, Lord, it's all before you. Show me what to do and I will follow. Do you think God's going to go, I don't think so. I don't want to help you. When we lay ourselves out before the Lord, God works in mighty, powerful ways. That's when God loves to answer prayer. Don't do anything in your life until you wait on the Lord. Until you get a sense of what he's doing. If you need counsel, get spiritual counsel. If you need to talk to one of the leaders, talk to one of the leaders. If you need somebody to pray for you, every single Sunday, people from the prayer band are ready up here to pray for you. We will stay as long as you need. We'll stay through Harbor Cafe and be on our knees and pray for you if that's what you need. Don't, don't try to manage this yourself. 
We have prayer before the service at 840. We have prayer after the service at 840. We have prayer cards in the Welcome Center, and we have an email address where you can send prayer requests to. If you need prayer, we'll pray. But don't ask for God's approval on what you want. Ask for his clear leading on what he wants. And when we pray that way, he says to us, this is the way, walk in it. But if we don't call on him, we won't hear that voice. And how many times have you and I not prayed or not listened and we sped right ahead and flew right into a brick wall? I don't know about you, but I got a lot of scars from times like that. Or I thought I was the right way and I didn't need to ask God for help and I didn't need guidance and I just do what I want and we just speed right ahead and it always leads to a problem. Well, this woman has a problem. Go back to the text. She's heartbroken. She has a financial problem. She knows there's no hope and she appeals to Elisha because he's a man of God and he says, what can I do to help you? And before she even answers, the Lord prompts Elisha to ask her a simple question. Look at it. What do you have in your house? Now, it's easy to think that when the Lord's about to work in a significant way, that he's only going to use highly gifted people in highly unusual situations that aren't normal. But so many times in Scripture and throughout biblical history, there, there are average people that are used in very normal situations who are willing to trust the Lord and follow his leading. And often that starts with a simple question. What did God ask Moses? Moses, what's in your hand? He says to Samuel, simply, Samuel? He says to Isaiah, who will go for me? He says to Paul, why are you persecuting me? And here to this woman in chapter 4 of 2 Kings, he says, what do you have in your house? And her answer could not be more unspectacular. What does she say? I don't have anything but a jar of oil. Now from a realistic practical standpoint there is absolutely no way that a small jar of oil is going to be the answer to her financial problems there's no way that jar of oil is going to be an answer to any problems she can't even make food with it it's just a jar of oil i mean i guess you could drink it but that would be pretty nasty right so she says i don't have anything elisha all i have in my whole house is a jar of oil and the creditors are coming. My kids are about to be slaves. I don't have anyone or anything. And my life, as I essentially know it, is going to be over. So this jar of oil, how in the world could that be the answer? There's no way that that can be the solution. But here's the thing. The Lord doesn't operate on what seems realistic and practical. The Lord doesn't operate within our realm of understanding and our realm of reality. And faith doesn't see the possibilities according to what's realistic and practical. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Because with God, all things are what? Tell me. Possible. Do you believe that? 
If you're the woman and you're looking around and the creditors are knocking and your kids are about to be taken and you have a jar of oil and you go to the prophet and say, you got to help me. And he says, what do you have? I've got a jar of oil. A at that point, is your faith and my faith going to say with God, all things are possible. So, so clearly God has a solution. This is an insurmountable problem. There's no way there's going to be an answer. But God is the answer. God will make all things possible. God will bless if I trust him. So you know what, Lord? Why I don't see it, and I don't know what the answer is, and I can't fathom how in the world you are going to work. Still, I will trust you. Imagine what the Lord can do in your life and my life and this church if we will believe that truth. As children of God, we sometimes face situations where the only question we have may be crying, may be weeping, may be on our face, is what do I do? Because, Lord, I don't have the answer. It's not there. I'm clueless. I can't see what's going on. Everything is hopeless. And in that moment, if our faith will understand the Lord is faithful and his mercy and his grace and his resources are exceeding abundantly above all that we could ask or think, in that moment, we'll praise him. Faith is such a difficult thing. And yet it's so easy because it's based on the Lord. And the Lord never, ever disappoints. Elisha's predecessor had had the same problem, remember? With the widow in Zarephath, who he went to and he said, I need something to eat. We studied that a while back. I need something to eat. And, and she says, well, I don't have anything. I've got a little bit of flour, a little bit of oil. And I was about to go to my house and, and make a piece of bread. And my son and I are going to eat and we're going to die because there was a drought. You remember what Elijah said to her? Go make me some bread first. Go, go, go make me some bread. And after you make the bread for me and I eat it, I'm telling you that if you'll do that, if you operate by faith at this point, that, that that flour and that oil will not expire. So it isn't surprising that what Elijah did, Elijah did in chapter 15 of 1 Kings, now God repeats here, look back in 2 Kings chapter 4. And Elijah and Elisha have the same word. And Elisha's word to the woman is, you have to pour it out. So first, ma'am, who, who, who I love and appreciate because your husband was one of my prophets and, and he was a good man. He loved the Lord and I care about you. So, so here's what you need to do. Take a deep breath. All right, here's what you're going to do. You're going to go get as many vessels as you can. Notice in the text, look at it, that Elisha says at the end of, where is it? Uh, end of verse 3. He says, do not get a few. Do not get a few. Now, now, don't come back here with two scrawny little vessels and think that's enough. See, what he's doing is he's testing the extent of her faith. True faith has high expectations of the Lord based on the richness of his mercy and past experience. So, 
Don't get a few now. All right, here's the plan. Number one, go get a bunch of vessels. Borrow them from your neighbors if you have to. But I'm telling you, you need to line them up in your house. Get everything you possibly can. Get as many vessels as you can. Second part of the plan, you go in your house and you shut the door. Why? I, I wrestled with that for a while, and I think the conclusion is because this is not a spectacle. This is not a magic trick for everybody to see. This is the crucible moment of her faith where she's going to go before the Lord and trust in his sufficiency. So she says, get your kids, go in the house, and close the door. you got all the vessels lined up. Now, here's the important part. Pour out whatever you have into those vessels. The woman had to show faith to follow Elisha's direction and in doing that, she influenced her sons. Because like the other widow, she was trusting the Lord with all she had. Now, she's not using it to make bread. But she has to sow the same confidence in the word of the Lord without the certainty of what's going to happen. So she does what Elisha says. He told her and to pour it in each jar and to set aside when it's full. So I tried to imagine that. I wonder if she was kind of like a little bit here. A little bit in here, a little bit in here, a little bit in here, and all the way down. All right? I've got a little bit more. Okay? A little bit in here, a little bit. I, I don't think she just dumped it all out in one vessel until it was full. I, because she had to put it in every jar, I think she just went little by little. And as she kept going, she still had oil. And the vessels are getting more and more full until all the vessels that she has are full of oil. And the kids are like, and she says to the son, go get me another vessel. He says, there aren't any more. This is all we have. And as soon as they were out of vessels, the oil stopped. Now, here is a very important spiritual principle that is counterintuitive, but it is essential to our faith. The supply of the Lord comes when we pour out. The supply of the Lord comes when we pour out, when she was pouring out what she had, the Lord kept supplying her with more and filling what she had. But when she stopped pouring, the miracle stopped. We don't know how many vessels she went and got, but apparently it was less than the Lord was willing to supply. When she ran out of vessels, when there were no more to fill with oil, the oil ran dry. Imagine if she had only brought two vessels or three vessels. We don't know. The text doesn't tell us how many. Imagine if she only brought two instead of ten because the Lord didn't want to fill up two. He wanted to fill up as many as she found. So how many vessels would we have gone and gotten? We had a little jar of oil. Okay, you're telling me I'm going to put that in the vessels and they're going to fill up. Well, gee, there's a matter of, what is it, physics at this point? I, I don't know what science that would be, but let's choose physics. I got this much oil, and I got five vessels that are this high. Anybody knows that's not going to work. Bill Nye says that's not going to work. God wanted to fill. And this is true of the Christian life. It's a mistake to think that God's blessing and God's anointing will flow out when we're not willing to pour out. I'm going to say that again. It is a mistake to think that God's blessing and anointing will flow out when we're not willing to pour out. And that has a lot of applications 
to situations in which we're not willing to pour out. It applies to prayer. Going to the Lord hesitantly, asking only for our will, asking without complete faith, and then expecting him to honor that and being disappointed when he doesn't. It applies to worship, withholding praise, or singing half-heartedly, or praying without our mind on what we're doing and expecting his presence to be strong. It applies to giving, giving less than we're called to give, or giving with an unhappy, reluctant attitude and expecting God to bless us. It applies to putting off sin, still being worldly, not rejecting sin, not putting off the past, and expecting him to be pleased or to just overlook it because he's such a gracious God and he'll just put up with anything. He, He didn't really mean to be separate and holy. It applies to our everyday life, not dying to self and following Christ and expecting that we're going to have power over sin and that we're going to be able to have victory over the enemy, even though we're continuing to hold on what he loves the most. See, God's blessing and God's anointing is only promised, listen now, when we pour out. That's the only time where God's going to work. And that was symbolized when somebody was anointed in the Bible. You remember what happened when they were anointed? What would they pour out when someone was anointed? Anybody know? They'd pour out oil on the head. David, when he was anointed by Samuel, Samuel brought a vessel of oil and he poured it on David's head and he says, you're the anointed one as the king of Israel. When Jesus was about to go to the cross, what happens? The woman comes in with a box of expensive perfume and she doesn't go, here Jesus, smell this. She breaks open and she pours it over his head and she pours it over his feet and she takes her hair and she rubs it on his feet and Judas goes, what do you think you're doing? Jesus says, she knows what's going to happen. She's anointing me. She's preparing me. Judas, if you only knew, I'm about to go to the cross. You're going to be the one that's going to send me there. She loves me because she anointed me. See, she poured out her worship. God's law for us is that when we pour out, he will pour in. When we pour out, he will fill us. When we're loving the Lord and we're giving everything to him and we're trusting him and obeying and serving him, you know what he'll do? He'll pour out his spirit on us and he'll anoint us. When we're loving people and we're caring for people and our heart is broken for the lostness of the world, And we're speaking to people and giving them truth and sharing the gospel and saying, can I pray for you? And loving our enemies, even though they scream at us and persecute us and tell us that we're crazy. When we do that, you know what God does? He pours out our spirit on us and he anoints our lives. When we're giving him what we have and we're willing to be led and we're willing to serve, God pours out his spirit and he anoints our lives. This woman didn't have a lot All she had was oil. But listen, the Lord isn't looking for what you have. He's looking at whether you're willing to pour it out. He doesn't care about your resources. He knows your resources. He gave you all your resources. He's not impressed with your bank account or your resume. He just wants to know if you'll give it to him. Will you give it to him? Will you entrust him? with it see our problem is we want guarantees well lord i'll follow you but you show me what you're gonna do 
you better tell me where I'm going, and I, you better answer this prayer, because I've given you a deadline, so you better follow my rules. And Lord, you better not stretch me. You better not give me anything that, that I don't think I can handle. And you better show me what the light is at the end of the tunnel, because I'm not entering into a dark tunnel, because I don't do that. You know what? That's not how the Lord always works. I've been saved 42 years. That's not how the Lord always works. If we wait to see only what's certain, we're never going to walk by faith and we're never going to see the Lord work. But he says, when you pour it out, that's when I'll work. And the more you pour out, the more of my spirit I'm going to give you. The more you pour out, the more I'm going to anoint you. Do you want to see that true? Test the principle in giving. Pour out your offerings generously and joyfully. And see what the Lord will do. And you say, well, there it is. I come to church, you're talking about money. Do you know how little I talk about money? This is not a budget appeal. I don't care about budget. It's all the Lord's. This is not a budget appeal. This is not me saying, you need to give more. We need better offerings. We need more money in the bank account. This is not me saying, if you give, God will bless you like some kind of crazy false prophet. This is saying Malachi 3.10, where the Lord says, bring your whole offering into the storehouse and watch me open up heaven. You, you bring me what you have, and you trust me with your resources because I have all the resources at my disposal. You come in and you do that, and you test me. He actually uses that word. He says, test me and see whether I don't bless you. Test it in praise to the Lord. Stop worrying what people think. Stop worrying what the music sounds like. Too loud, too soft. I know it was loud this morning. Who cares? Let's not worry about that. Let's just praise and magnify the Lord. Because we're not here to be satisfied in ourselves. We're here to be satisfied in the Lord. This spiritual principle also applies to love and sacrifice. So test it in your marriage. Test it in your relationship. Humble yourself and sacrifice. Lord, speaking to me right now. Humble yourself and sacrifice and pour out your love to another person and see if it doesn't set their heart on fire and give them greater love for you. Some of you need to do that in your marriages because your marriages are in trouble. And I'm going to tell you, this is in love. Stop being so selfish and start pouring yourself out to your spouse. And I promise you, you won't even need counseling. Quit looking at everybody else for the solution and take ownership and say, it's incumbent on me to pour myself out to my spouse. Well, she has to submit to me. You know what? The Bible says, first submit yourselves one to another as unto the Lord. So don't give me that. Well, I don't, I don't want to honor my husband. Well, then you're out of fellowship. Pour yourself out. Test it with your words. Instead of pouring out criticism and anxiety and stress, try pouring out edification and love. Speak words of truth. Try it with your time. Instead of being so jealous about your time, pour out your time. Give your time to somebody else and see if people aren't drawn to you and reciprocate that. And more and more, we need to do it in terms of ministry. Not, not self-centeredness, not, not pull in the wagons and have church and be our little body. No, the Bible says what? Go out where? Into the world and preach the gospel. We're not trying to draw people in because we have a great service or good music or nice lighting or whatever. We're trying to go out and get people and say, you need to know Jesus Christ. 
There's no telling what God will do when we pour out before him. This woman wasn't a prophet. Her husband was. She's just a woman with a problem. But she learned the spiritual principle. If we're not pouring out, how do we expect God to work? If we're waiting for assurance, then we will never operate in faith. You know what we'll be like? We'll be like the Dead Sea. I've been in the Dead Sea. I floated in the Dead Sea. You can't sink in the Dead Sea because it's dead. Nothing flows out of the Dead Sea. Everything just comes in and dies. The Sea of Galilee is up to the north. It's beautiful, lush, fresh, wonderful. It feeds the Jordan River. No wonder Jesus spent so much time there. Jesus didn't hang around the Dead Sea. He hung around the place that had life. And what did he do? No matter how tired he was, no matter how weary he was, no matter how criticized he was, no matter how threatened he was, he kept pouring out words of life. He kept pouring out love for people. He kept pouring out ministry and healing to people. He kept pouring out his power. He emptied himself, the Bible says in Philippians 2, he emptied himself all the way to the cross where he took your sin and my sin and he put it on himself and he poured out his life. And that's why we're saved this morning. And Paul says, because of that, we now are a drink offering. Drink offering in the Old Testament was when they would bring wine and they would pour it out before the Lord. Paul says, now my life is a drink offering. I'm called and you're called to give ourselves fully to the Lord in every single way. Now, we don't usually gravitate toward pouring out. We gravitate toward holding in. But the spiritual principle the Lord is teaching us is just the opposite, and I'm done. The more we pour out, the more we'll have. Give and what? It will be given to you. Not hold on to it, not keep it close to the vest, not play it safe, not keep control, not, oh, it's yours, and God will still bless. No, he says, give, and I'll give. Come near, and I'll come near. Pour out your life, I'll bless you. So what do you need to pour out before the Lord this morning? What empty vessels does he want to fill up with his anointing and his power? But to do that, listen, to do that, you're going to have to empty. You're going to have to pour out. Let's close our eyes.